Welcome to the Suburban Vicar Podcast. My name's Steve Silverthorne, your host. The Suburban Vicar is a podcast about faith and community and how they intersect to help our neighborhoods flourish and to nurture the human spirit. Today I interview Dr. Ashley Hales, the author of the recent book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. We connected over Skype to talk about her book and about how we can live out our Christian lives faithfully in the suburbs. So relax, pour yourself a locally sourced organic kombucha, turn your speakers up, and enjoy. I'm really privileged today to be here with Ashley Hales. Dr. Ashley Hales has written recently a book called Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. So Ashley, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, just to start off, uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what the book's about and what led you to uh, to feel the need to write it. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I wrote the book really out of my own kind of spiritual wanderings. We had lived kind of all over, my husband and I. He's a church planter in Southern California now. And when we moved to Southern California, back home to the suburbs, literally miles from where we grew up, I, I think we realized, and particularly I did, how much I had used place as kind of this identity marker. And uh, we had lived overseas. We've lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, all of these kind of different exotic feeling sorts of places. And moving home, I had to kind of reckon with all of these false selves that we've built up about what have I accomplished? What am I doing? Um, And to realize that there is a calling to the suburbs as well Mm -hmm. as Christians. And I wanted to kind of keep exploring that rather than say, you have to do some big things for God or move overseas um, to be significant, that we can actually live very ordinary suburban lives well and love God and love our neighbor. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'm also a suburban kid. I grew up in Burnaby, which is a suburb of Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. Yep. And and I grew up in a fairly large church, so we'd get a regular number of of different speakers who'd come who were like, you know, some medical outpost in, in the third right. world, or yep. they'd come and talk about their ministry with street people. And that's sort of like, there's the front line of where God's yes. really at work in the world. Yep. But even though it was a suburban church and everybody who went there was probably born and raised in the suburbs, <laughs> I rarely got speakers kind of addressing that and saying, like, mm-hmm. this is where God's really at work. Mm-hmm. I mean, why do you think that there's that neglect there? And why do you think that the church has tended not to really, um, you know, highlight this as a sort of, you know, spiritually vibrant place mm-hmm. or a place to do vibrant ministry? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we always like the big stories, right? And I think, you know, there's a, a history, particularly in evangelical strains that, tends to focus on the kind of this missionary or martyr narrative as this is what it looks like to follow God. You're all in. And I think we can be all in and still look, look very small and very ordinary and actual, you know, love our actual neighborhoods and our actual neighbors. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the the challenges too, is to sort of have this image of what I could do if I was somewhere else. And it gets a lot harder to actually do something where I'm right on the doorstep of something. So maybe that's part of it. I think so. I think so. You know, it's easy to look back or look forward and to not actually live in our present. Yeah, I know. It's uh, both uh, in place and also in in time, always looking at what I'm going to do as opposed to what I'm actually doing. Right. So one of the things that I I wonder if we could really talk about uh, as well is, um, you know, some of the ways that the, the suburbs prevent spiritual challenges to people, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of, uh, 
you know, long history of critique of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I used to really enjoy On the Road. So Jack mm-hmm. Kerouac in the 50s yeah. has run around the United States. Yeah. And of course, the suburbs to the Beatniks was all Squaresville, right? Yeah. And then you also got all these, you know, films like, you know, Stepford Wives or American Beauty that sort of right. say the su- suburbs all suck for yeah. various reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is it that a, a Christian perspective brings to the table that isn't already there uh, and isn't already part of the regular critique of the suburbs? Yeah, you know, I think what's really fascinating about the critique of the suburbs is that it's been around for hundreds of years. And yeah. um, I just recently reviewed a book, uh, uh, it's an academic work called The Promise of the Suburbs, which it, you know, this Victorian literature and these like hapless men wandering into the suburbs and they'll kind right. of be whisked away by the you know, woman behind her Venetian blinds. (laughs) But, you know, so it's nothing new. And, you know, to some extent, it's performed, you know, for us, as like, we're all in on the joke of like, isn't it funny that the suburbs are dull and, um, you know, kind of lifeless, or this kind of step bird wives sort of place. But I think, you know, that there is the challenges, I think our places do tell us what what to love. They, they shape our desires and our affections. And the suburbs, I think, really have been built on kind of a foundation of consumerism on, you know, the get, you know, especially in America where we have the, you know, you have to have your, your American dream, which is your house and your picket fence and your children. Right. And, and that that has become the analog for what, what successful living looks like. And so I think the Christian church then has a unique opportunity to say, yes, we want our kids to be safe. Yes, we want flourishing communities. Yes, we don't want homelessness or something. Um, but there are ways that those sorts of narratives are actually tweaking our our souls and that they're so kind of dumbing down and, um, and making us so comfortable that we kind of forget why we're here. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit, because I know um, one of the things you, or one of the people you quote in your book is uh, James K. Smith. And he talks a little bit about the, you know, secular liturgies and you go to the mall and there's sort of a liturgical function. Now, yeah. I, I belong to a liturgical church, but mm-hmm. not everybody maybe knows what that what that means. Like, how is it that the, the sort of the regular act of consumerism and getting in your car and going to the mall and and sort of enjoying your big house? Like, how do those things on a practical day to day level shape our loves and maybe or or malform them or point them in the wrong direction? That's a great question. So I think too, I like to think of liturgy as often as like a guiding story. And so that's kind of a helpful, very baseline definition. And so, you know, whether we're at church and we see the story of the gospel worked out in the liturgy of the service, our lives have liturgies too. They have guiding stories. And so our places, our bodies, you know, the mall, um, our roots and our habits are those things that are kind of the plot points of the story that shape shape our desires and our affections. And if we are really primarily desiring creatures, like Jamie Smith says, and lots of other folks like Jen Pollock Michelle and Tish Harrison Warren. And St. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. And Paul. Um, yeah. um, but you know, if we are desiring creatures, then what we do with our bodies and our cars and how we spend our money and our time is going to actually evidence what's going on in our hearts. Right. And so suburbia, I think particularly, you know, if you take the mall example or Target, we have bunches of Target here, Targets here. And Target has become kind of this suburban mom liturgy. Um, I'm prey to it. I admit it. Um, but, you know, where people go in there for relief, you get your Starbucks coffee, you get some deals, you get nice lighting, you get things on clearance. And it provides a sense of like 
I'm worth it. I'm okay. I can spend my money and, you know, also get things done. And so it gives us all of, you know, those dopamine hits, um, you know, the pleasure of purchasing something and getting it on sale. And that forms us into, and so we keep going back, right? We keep going back to those things that, that form us. And unfortunately, most of the time we're told through advertising and just our own cultures that we buy to be happy. Yeah, I find it really interesting, too, that uh, it's really, really hard to be present in the the modern world and escape those things. Because mm-hmm. even when I'm trying not to go to the mall, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my phone is right next to me. And right. so, it you know, it's flashing every once in a while. Right. Some some advertisers sent something somewhere. Uh, and so you even have things like geofencing and that where you walk past a place and it starts bombarding you with, you know, what deals are there. Mm-hmm. So. One of the things that I think sometimes we misunderstand is sort of think that the suburbs or the marketplace is a neutral place as opposed to something that's really grabbing us. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that Christians and particularly Christian ministers, uh, you know, who sort of see this problem, how can we do a better job of, of awakening people to that reality? Because I, I think for a lot of people, for me to, to say to them that there's like a spiritual battle going on uh, every time you're out in the mall or, you know, you visit Costco. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it sounds a little bit too like weirdy, you know, snake right. handling. There's, you know, the devil's behind every bush kind of thing. Right. Um, and also, you know, the, that idea of autonomy. It's like I'm a, I'm a consumer who has a power and a credit card and I feel like I'm making my own choices. What do you mean I'm being shaped by these things? I'm, I'm the master of my own destiny. Mm. What are ways that you think that, that are better ways of sort of cracking into that and, and, you know, without grabbing people by the lapel, but just sort of saying, you know, have you considered the ways that your, 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 your daily habits are actually shaping you in maybe a wrong direction? Yeah. No, I think that's a fabulous question because, yeah, you don't want to simply beat people over the head and, you know, say, you're, you know, your money is evil or something. <laughs> you're a slave to the devil. Yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of it might be even just in asking some good starter questions. Yeah. Um, something like, you know, uh, you know, how do you do you use on your Apple iPhone? Do you use the screen time? You know, what's your? Were you surprised when that came out and you yeah. realized, wow, I'm on my phone a lot? Or, um, you know, what is you know what does silence and solitude um, look like for you? Uh, do you have any margin in your schedule? You feel like you can breathe. Um, you know, are you working out? Like all of these sorts of kind of more holistic ways of engaging the world and God and our bodies and our church communities and our neighborhoods, I think are ways to at least begin then the questions that lead people into self-realization about, oh my goodness, I am, I'm going, you know, to the coffee shop or I'm eating the sugar or yeah. I'm working out or I'm spending well, like my- a lot more money here. Yeah. Right. On all of these things that I hadn't even realized, or, you know, I'm, I'm feeling more exhausted after binging on Netflix instead of rested. What, what's that about? Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned too, in your, your book, uh, is the critique not only of consumerism, but also this individualism and sense of personal autonomy. Mm -hmm. And I know just like it is with buying, you know, your phones give you that illusion of autonomy all the time. And you also have this sort of you know, it's a cliche, but I see it all the time, right? Especially because in Ottawa, it gets super cold in the winter. <laughs> so you're not like right? chatting outside with your neighbor. Right. right. So you go right into your garage and then you, you know, turn on the Netflix. And nowadays, right. of course, you get these, all these different apps that just sort of deliver food to you. So you don't even have to go out to a restaurant, right? right? Yeah. So one of the things that, that people hold on to is the sense of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we also celebrate it, right? I mean, right. perhaps Canada, a little bit less than America, yeah. the land <laughs> of the free, but... Right. 
you still have the sense that I'm the consumer, I'm the person in charge. Yes. What are ways that maybe um, to sort of address that sense of autonomy, like that maybe you're not actually quite as autonomous as you think? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's the original sin of the garden, right? That Eve and Adam decided that they wanted to be like God. They wanted the, the power and the autonomy and the authority that God has. And so, you know, there's no way that we're going to just drop that somehow yeah. by by good practices. Um, but, you know, it's going to plague us even in in the ways in which we are communally, communally oriented and living in, you know, church and neighborhood. Um, but I do think a lot of it has to do with when you choose to meet with other people, when you choose to leave margin in your schedule, when you choose to invite neighbors over. I mean, we just, that things really change. And um, we, we were just recently, and I ran into an old college acquaintance and she invited our whole family over for dinner, which doesn't often happen. We're a family of six. My husband's a pastor. We usually have everybody, you know, in our home. And it was surprising to me, right? Because we don't expect often to be invited into other people's homes, lives, messes, especially if we don't have um, a longstanding relationship. And so I think hospitality might be one of those ways that surprises us enough to start thinking about the ways in which we have fashioned our lives to revolve either just around the self, the auto, the autonomous self, or, you know, the nuclear family. Here in the suburbs where we are, everyone kind of, their schedules revolve around their children and sports schedules um, rather than kind of a larger community. And that is really hard because you can't really say, oh, you shouldn't do something for your children, right? That's yeah. our, our golden calf of, <laughs> of the suburbs here in Southern California. Yeah, you're but, too. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's ways to begin to create community that allows individuals to go, huh, I'm actually feeling more fulfilled, you know, around the table with friends than I am, you know, trying to check off everything on my to-do list or whatever standards of kind of personal autonomy that we cling to. It's funny because just this morning I was looking um... – Anyway, there's an institute in Canada called the Cardis Institute, and they sort of look at, at faith and community. And they had uh, uh, noted that there was a recent uh, study done by Angus Reid in Canada, and it does a, did a huge survey. And it was a shocking number, but it said uh, one in five Canadians today uh, self-identify as either extremely lonely or socially isolated. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this tremendous mm-hmm. knowledge that people have, like this isolating thing is not doing good things for me. Yeah, but I also found in the suburbs that even you know attempts at hospitality, a lot of times people just don't know what to do with it. Right? It's like, right. why is this person talking to me, and right. why does this person <laughs> want to invite me over? And <laughs> and so that there's this also this this sort of like this weird duality where we're lonely and we know that it's not feeding us, but we're also afraid of community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things too I notice is is also part of that veneer we talk about, like the outside thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to invite people into my house, and it doesn't look like Martha Stewart lives here, right? I mean, it looks it looks like a you know guy with four and, yeah. and a normal house, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's really challenging. And, but I wonder whether what ways that hospitality can work on practical levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, how is it that we start and how does we keep ourselves encouraged when we get rebuffed? Because mm-hmm. it's hard to sort of invite and say, I'd like to invite you to my home and find that your neighbors don't seem down with it. Right, right. You're trying, but they're not responding. Um, you know, yeah, I think sure. a, a lot of it, a lot of it begins, I think, um, in community, you know, that we were committed with a community towards being hospitable. Right. Um, our church, 
for instance, um, has read the book, The Art of Neighboring, and that became in small groups. And that became a way for us to encourage one another to be hospitable, to actually get to know our neighbors, to find out their names, to embrace the awkward conversations about, I know we've lived here for five years, but I forgot your name and who are your kids. Um, And so a lot of it has to do with surrounding the success of that is not isolating yourself, right? Not thinking you in your own personal autonomy or familial autonomy, right? Can be hospitable to your whole neighborhood that you have a wider, you have a wider community to be responsible to. And I think a lot of it too, it has to start in really small steps. And so um, maybe in the summers when you can be outside, um, you know, choosing to hang out outside, you know, choosing to be in your front yard rather than your backyard, uh, choosing to be in the alleyways, choosing to go on walks so that you're getting to know people naturally. And it's not like, hi, I have no idea who you are. Will you come over for dinner? That would be a little, I'd be like, no, that's a little bit, that's a bit yeah. off-putting. Um, but, you know, if you're in those third spaces too, you know, whether that's a local pub or a local restaurant or library or, you know, co-working space that people hang out, that mm. that's a natural place to begin to getting to get to know people, and then you can move on from there, maybe in a block party, um, and then you know something sure. like that would then enable you to invite people over into your home. Yeah, I actually find it's just an interesting thing that I, um, as I said, it's cold in the winter, so I understand people aren't hanging out. But yeah. do you know who actually is outside are dog owners. And we just got a dog yeah. last year, yeah. and it was really interesting how I don't want to go out for walks when it's minus 20, but my dog does, so right. I'm out there. And yep. so there's a half a dozen people uh, walking yep. their dogs around the neighborhood, and yep. I actually get to know them and to get to know their names, and it's a tremendous sort of opening for people. Uh, who's your dog, and what's your yep. dog like, and what kind of right. breed? It's a small thing, yeah. but it's important. Yep. No, dogs and children, small children, can tend yeah, to be right. f- helpful connectors. Yeah, no, I think I'm maybe at my limit with kids, but uh, my that's dog's true. still got a few years in her. <laughs> yep. Um, one of the things, too, I noticed that you talked about is, is this safety and about the way that the suburbs, you know, attract people because of that, the desire for safety, and particularly around kids, right? And one of the things that I noticed, and I, I've been thinking a lot about how it is that we lose the sense of place we have in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. is that when I was a kid uh, in the summer, so, mm-hmm. you know, almost 40 years ago, not want to date myself too much, <laughs> but my mom would almost, you know, kick me out of the house in the summer. We didn't go to camps and things. It was just don't come back until the lights come on. Uh, right. Sweet lights, right? And then right. that's time for supper. Yeah. So I'd wander around to my friend who lived mm-hmm. two miles away and I'd be on my bike and he wasn't home, so I'd go to the next friend. And so even today, I can think in my mind's eye, of the color of the different houses, where they are at different corners, all the different places where there's, you know, good playgrounds, where there's place to build a fort, kind of a scrubland or something like that. When I look around my neighborhood today, very rarely do I see younger children on bikes uh, traveling around by themselves. If they're out at all, they're out with their parents. Mm-hmm. And then also, whenever my kids want to go out and meet with anybody, it's like I got to phone their, their or text right. their, their parents. And I, so one of the things that seems to prevent us from actually knowing our place is that desire for safety for our kids. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard thing to bridge. Mm-hmm. Any sort of suggestions about how we, you know, can maybe embrace that kind of free rangey thing with our kids and with ourselves? Um, because of course, what everybody's fear is, is that you're going to be the one kid who gets snatched and, and everybody's going to say, where was the parent? They were terrible. Right. Uh, and that's a really intense, deep fear. But it also, we seem to be robbing our children, robbing ourselves of the sense of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And I love I love hearing about your own childhood that way. You know, in the neighborhood where we are, there are a lot of safe bike paths, but then, you know, there's still an accident that happened recently in our community where a child was hit. And, you know, I think there's 
there are so many different things that conspire against us letting go of our children. (laughs) I think in this day and age, um, you know, I think it's just, it's so hard. I mean, and those of us who are parents, right, this is our first time being parents, right? We've never had, you know, the age of kids that we have. Um, And I think the problem is parenting has become, it's become another marker of success. And I think, unfortunately, most parents these days are so concerned about what other people think of them, or if they're doing it, quote unquote, right, um, that we have, we've equated parenting kind of as our um, report card for our humanity. Um, And so we don't let our kids out of our sight because we're afraid to fail. Um, you know, we don't let them ride their bikes around the neighborhood because what if some some something happens? Um, that would be devastating. And so I think, which is entirely true. Um, sure. But I th- the, the problem with that is we have neglected, we don't have a, a good sense of a theology of suffering and pain and loss. If the worst were to happen, yep. is God good? Would I be able to get it through through it with my community? You know, would there still be somehow redemption if the worst were to happen? Yeah. We don't really have any categories for that practically. Yeah. I think we're so we try to micromanage our children um, by being helicopter parents. Um, but we've we've seen though that unfortunately that kind of hovering attitude is actually horrible for our children. Um, in the Price of Privilege, a book that came out a few years ago. Um, the author was was speaking about it's actually those children who come from affluence, which tends to be suburban neighborhoods, right? Uh, with over-involved parents um, that are more at risk than children of poverty for suicide and other mental health-related issues. Yeah. Um, and so we are actually malforming our children, I think, when we when we are unable to let go, because ultimately we feel that if we can control the situation, that our children will be okay, and then therefore we'll be okay, instead of trusting in God, (laughs) really. Well, it's funny because just uh, like our church uses a lectionary, so we have this assigned cycle of readings from the Bible, and a couple weeks is coming up, this parable of the the rich fool who uh, builds a storehouse and thinks I'm going to fill it up with grain. And then God says, you know, sorry, (laughs) coming home today. Um, And it's really a powerful message, but it also is something that's just uh, outside of the horizon of most people because we, we settle in the suburbs, we want security. And then sometimes things happen that give us this illusion of control that actually, and realize it and masks as an illusion. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is also really challenging in church leadership is, is that, that churches don't seem to be, or a lot of modern churches don't seem to be able to really embrace lament. And you think about a popular Christian music uh, and a lot of the way that we approach church, it's it's that we're afraid we don't want to give somebody a downer because they're going to go to the church down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it really hard to, to lament as a group and also as individuals, and we don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just an ongoing challenge, and I'm not really sure how to crack that nut other than to to sort of maybe try and model as much as you can. And also maybe I've been thinking too about the use of the Psalms because yeah. the Psalms are the original songbook of the the church and mm-hmm. they got one heck of a lot of lament in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Song. Yeah. Yeah. Good hymns that give voice yeah. to all sure. of, the, all of the feelings. Yeah, of course. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask about as well is, is that um, you talk about some of the antidotes or counter liturgies to the way that we live. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you you said seems a little shocking on the face of it, which is that you sort of embrace exile and embrace the sense of homesickness mm-hmm. in the suburbs when the suburbs are actually supposedly built to keep us from feeling uh, that 
right? Mm -hmm. So there's everything militating against it because mm -hmm. we've got all the, 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 mm -hmm. the safety in that. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? I mean, why is it that we want to embrace exile and why would we want to embrace homesickness? Mm. You know, I think the more we try to make wherever place that we live be this be all and end all experience right. of home and belonging, the further we leave opportunity for the Holy Spirit, I think, to draw us to God. Um, and so what I mean by that is that, you know, as as we pursue kind of the, the idols of the suburbs, you know, whether that's the big house and the square footage or, you know, the fancy home renovation or, um, you know, the promotion that will get us to the vacation for early retirement, you know, all of these kind of markers of the suburban good life, as we pursue those sorts of idols of our place, we become kind of anesthetized to, to suffering, to pain, to empathy for other people, um, you know, to the needs of our neighbors. And we become closed off and hard, kind of like the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. And, and so I think, you know, the challenge then is to say, if, if I ultimately believe that the story of the gospel is the narrative um, that my life should be shaped around, then that means like Jesus, I will never be fully at home in any place. Um, and that my, my joy is my home is finally in God himself. Um, you know, Augustine says, right, our hearts are restless until right. rest in, in the, and so I think part of that is to realize that this kind of a little bit of this ache, as much as we might be comfortable in a place, this ache is part of God working in us to, to prepare us for a home that will satisfy all of our longings and all of our desires. And the more that we try to make any place fit that, we will find ourselves exhausted and worried and anxious and spinning our wheels in overwork. Yeah. I think what, one of the things that, that's challenging about that is, is that we have this illusion that we can get something without cost or that we can grow without cost. Mm -hmm. And there always seems to be an app for something, but there's no yeah. app for, for your own growth. And there's also no app for building community because it, mm -hmm. you know, you need vulnerability, you need to be sensitive to your own needs in order to start being sensitive uh, to the mm -hmm. needs of your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask before we, we close up is, um, you know, you, you close your book, um, which I thought was really my, my favorite part of it. I guess uh, hearing about the bad stuff of the suburbs isn't quite as fun as about hearing right. about what's good. Um, but you talk about shalom. And yep. uh, one of the things that I find really interesting in the Bible is, is that it starts off with this picture of harmony and peace with people in the garden, harmony with God, harmony with nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, when they kick, get kicked out of the garden, uh, it's Cain who just killed his brother goes off to build the first city mm -hmm. and there's plenty of nasty things that are said about cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Babylon, but also Jerusalem, which, you mm -hmm. know, stones the prophets and kills those sent to you. And of course, supremely kills Jesus, God's mm -hmm. son. Mm -hmm. But then the, the scriptures ends not by let's wipe out this stuff and bring it back to the garden. It comes mm -hmm. with Jerusalem, uh, mm -hmm at peace with itself, adorned like a bride uh, for her husband. And mm -hmm. it comes out of, uh, out of heaven and descends mm -hmm. to the earth. And so you get this picture of this, this thing conceived in sin actually being renewed and re reformed. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a picture of shalom or of peace mm -hmm. that, that the scriptures give us. Mm -hmm. What what does what would you know Barhaven where I live in look like if it was adorned like a bride for her husband coming out of heaven or Orange County or or name whatever <laughs> suburb? Mm -hmm. Like what does Shalom look like and what is it should we should be you know what's the beatific vision for the suburbs that you think we can live out uh, when we don't exactly have the, the the biblical parallel we do for the urban core? Right. 
Well, I think, what a lovely question. You know, I think a lot of it would look like, um, you know, strong families. I mean, that's why people move to the, to the suburbs, but not families that are turned in on themselves, um, but, but families that are open that, you know, are, are bringing in the lost and the lonely. They're bringing in the fatherless and the widow that are kind of rethinking, you know, the church reconstitutes what family is. And so, Churches in the suburbs, I think, would ideally be those safe places, right, for people. But it wouldn't be this in my house, in my box, in my car, in that box, or my, you know, the box of the, of the picket fence. Right. Um, but rather, those that strength would come from knowing that we are ultimately beloved of God and that that is right. our primary identity. And so we get to welcome others into that. Um, we get to welcome people into safety and community and vulnerability and mission and service um, that looks less about having and more about being. I think it would look a lot more like doing and serving than about accumulating. Right. Well, that's a beautiful vision. So I'll, I'll get cracking with it today. Um, but <laughs> I, I really... Little small steps. That's where yeah, we got to start. <laughs> right. And, you know, reliance on God's providence. He's, yeah, he's carrying the weight yeah. Um, I just want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to spend with us today. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, just before we close, I wanted to say uh, courtesy of InterVarsity Press, uh, which is the publisher of Ashley's book, um, a free copy is available to anybody who would like it. But there's a skill testing question. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned earlier in the podcast where I grew up. What's the name of the suburb I grew up in? So if you can name it, you can uh, DM me or email me. I'll give you some uh, contact information in the show notes. But uh, you could get a free copy and be able to read it for yourself. So thank you to InterVarsity. Uh, if you wanted to learn a little bit more about Ashley or to stay in touch, uh, you can reach her at aahales.com, which is her website, or follow her uh, with her Twitter handle, at aahales. So thank you again, Ashley, and I wish you well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Appreciate right. Thanks it. again. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was our interview. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you did too. As always, I encourage you to hit that subscribe button on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, and that means that you'll always get a new episode delivered right to your device. If you like what you heard, please do give us a good review. And if you don't, please forget I said anything. You can follow me at SH Silverthorn on Twitter. Or if you wanted to contact me through my church's website, go to the Contact Us section of goodshepherdbarhaven.ca and that will send me an email. Don't forget you could get your hands on a copy of that book if you answer that skill testing question, where did Father Stephen grow up? Hope to hear from you soon. And until then... Stay rude to my friends.